listening to the DeCesare Group Podcast. I'm Jim DeCesare, and I'm glad you're here. Our guest this week is my very good friend, Greg Coker. He's an expert in leadership development, and I'll have more details in just a few moments about him. Hey, if you have not subscribed to our newsletter, Soki Economic Development and Business News, what are you waiting for? Subscribe today at the DeCesareGroup.com and like and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The DeCesare Group is a full-service business consulting, development, and public relations firm, and our mission is simple, to provide business solutions and strategies to entrepreneurs and businesses so they can succeed and grow. Now, my friend Greg Coker, the founder and driving force behind Greg Coker Development, is a prominent figure in the field of organizational leadership and development with a wealth of experience and a keen understanding of the ever-evolving dynamics of the business world. Greg has made a name for himself as a sought-after consultant, speaker, and coach. He is the author of Building Cathedrals, The Power of Purpose, The Soft Skills Field Manual, and Healing the Wounds, Forgiveness and Reconciliation in the Workplace. And his clients include education, business industry, correctional facilities, and high-performance individuals who benefit from his personal coaching. Greg Coker's dedication to helping organizations and individuals reach their full potential has established him as a trusted advisor and thought leader in the field. With his valuable insights and practical guidance, Greg continues to make a profound impact on organizations. Here's my conversation with leadership expert, Greg Coker. Hey, Greg, thanks for being on the DeCesare Group podcast. My pleasure, Jim. <laughs> I'm using my radio voice. <laughs> You've got a radio voice. I've got a face for radio. Yeah, you have you, radio voice. You and I both. <laughs> so let's get started. Um, let's talk about the pandemic and how it's uh, affected the overall state of organizations and what successful strategies have you seen out there uh, to overcome some of the, uh, the the repercussions of the pandemic, I think the best acronym to describe what we're going through, Jim, is called VUCA, and it's an old military term, and a lot of folks have heard of it now. Uh, coming into the, the pandemic, I'd never heard of VUCA. VUCA is an old military term: volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, mm -hmm. and it was used during the Cold War. And there's probably no better acronym to describe what we've been through and what we're going through. And I tell leaders across the country that I work with, you better get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, we are living in VUCA times and the pandemic. I would not wish the pandemic on my worst enemy, but I am convinced the pandemic was one of the better things that happened to corporate America. Explain. It, well, it's forced uh, organizations, you know, the shift in, uh, in, in a work life balance was already happening. Right. But what happened during the pandemic, even for folks who had to be on the front line every day, realize they could do their work a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. You know, there could be shifts in their hours. The folks that that were working from home realized that this was something they were asking for prior to the pandemic. Uh, but but management leadership, no, there's no way we can do that. Uh, it's not going to work. So what basically happened during the pandemic is we realized that there were folks getting out of their bed from one chair and then commuting 30 or 40 minutes. And that is the number one issue mm -hmm. of why folks want to work from home is the commute time. So we were forcing a lot of employees to get out of their bed, go from one chair to another chair, 30, 40 minute commute time, you know, coffee drinking or whatever, didn't get back in their office till an hour or so. And we're in a desk behind the door and realized I could do this at home. 
Now, a lot of the organizations that I work with, there's no way their employees can work from home. They have to be in the front line. Yeah. But Daniel Pink in his book, Drive, you know, Motivation 1.0 were, were carrot and sticks. And I'm not sure the carrot and sticks worked 25, 30 years ago, but it definitely is not working now. The new motivation based on the research that's been done in the great book by Daniel Pink Drive, there's three things that motivate folks. And it's uh, motivation 2.0 operating system. Number one is autonomy. Mm-hmm. Employees want to have some say in their work life. Number two is mastery. They want to have opportunities to learn and grow to be the best. And number three is purpose. Yeah. What Simon Sinek talks about why. So the yeah. pandemic, you know, it, it hurt uh, businesses and organizations' lifestyle in a lot of ways. But I honestly believe, I know I personally came out better, stronger, and faster. Sure. And it forced organizations to ask employees, you know, what, what do you need? How do you want to make this work-life balance? And what we found during the pandemic, and I know you did, and I did too, is not that our employees weren't working as hard or harder from home. They're working too much. Yeah. They didn't have to turn it off. And, and I asked folks, uh, you know, how do you know if you can trust someone? Trust them. Yeah. You'll know pretty quickly the folks are working from home. It's a pretty simple philosophy. You know, trust until you don't trust, exactly. until you have a reason not to trust. And, you know, you talk about uh, that, that 30, 40-minute commute from chair to chair. You also have the, the office dynamics of productivity. You, you may not keep your door closed. You may work in a cubicle. And then you have the people that wander around and, and socialize mm. while you're trying to work. And uh, I know someone uh, close to me who uh, was telling me a story, you know, can't ever get anything done. People are always coming and standing in my doorway talking for 30 minutes. Exactly. You know, and and you you keep trying to work, and it's like they don't get the hint sometimes. But, uh, you know, some of the things that I've read is productivity is is up because of remote work. Um, The DeCesare Group is a product of the pandemic. And guess where we all work from? (laughs) Exactly. Home. Now, I do have a commute, but it's from downstairs to upstairs. It's about 35 seconds. But, you know, I have a schedule. I stay up here, do my, my thing, and then, you know, I go to lunch downstairs, and then I come back up and work again or go do my meetings, whatever. It's also it takes some discipline uh, for those folks. And and not everybody gets it, is able to do it, you know, productively. They might start watching TV and catching their soaps, and before you know it, they're spending more time doing something else than their actual work. I get that part of it, but for the most part, most people are, are doing well working remotely. Exactly. And, and I talk quite a bit about the flow state. Mm-hmm. In the flow state, athletes call it in the zone. I know you're a musician. You call it in the in pocket. The, in the pocket, in, man. In the pocket. And there's tons of research on the flow state. And there's four stages of the flow state. The first stage is a struggle. Yeah. In, in, in what it says, the research, it says that you need to do something about 7 to 10% more than you can actually do. So if I play tennis with a really good friend of mine who's a thousand times better than me, I leave just out of shape and, and destroyed. Right. If I play with another friend of mine who's about 7 to 10% better than me in tennis, actually, that's who I should be playing with. He's yeah. a little bit better. So the first stage is the struggle. That's why I hang out with you. <laughs> exactly. <'cause I'm, laughs> You're 7% better than me. <laughs> I'd say 7% worse than you. So the first stage is the struggle. The second stage is the release. Mm-hmm. The third stage is where flow happens, and the fourth stage is the recovery. 
And I talk about those four because the first stage is the struggle. The second stage is the release. Now, that's profound for me is because the release, we have this writer's block. Uh, we have we have we just can't think anymore. And if you don't walk away from your desk or go take a nap or go for a walk, research shows you'll never get to the flow state. Right. So traditional workplaces would never let the release happen because we're stuck behind that office door in the traditional office setting is, where's Greg? Greg's not in his office. Uh, well, Greg's out there taking a walk. Greg's taking a walk? He's been on a walk for 30 minutes? Oh, yeah. Greg is releasing. And guess what? When he comes back in 30 minutes, those are when the ideas are going to pop. Yeah. So traditional workplaces, did I, in my opinion, Jim, did not let the flow state happen and working. And again, I know there's a lot of clients of mine that they're, they're employees. There's no way they can work from home, but how do you recreate your workplace where flow happens, where people are more creative and you just don't make them sit behind that desk? You know, the, there's five primary reasons why people are wanting some type of hybrid workplace. Number one's commute time. Mm -hmm. We talked about that. Number two is well-being. Number three is flexibility for your family. Number four is productivity. Number five is fewer distractions yep. that you mentioned and very often. But the Gallup, the recent Gallup poll talks about, well, what do most employees want? They basically want to work from home on Mondays and Fridays and be at the workplace on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Makes so sense. So there's some hybrid, but they also ask or, um, employees, for those that had to stay at work, what can we do for those that have to be in the workplace five days a week, which there's a lot of my clients, your clients that have to do that. They want maybe some opportunities for remote work occasionally, not every day, maybe work at multiple locations, Choice over their hours, some flex time, maybe a four-day work week occasionally, flexible start times, choice over days and hours, maybe some shorter shifts, maybe some increased paid time off for vacation. Yeah. So there's some things we can do for even the folks that have to be in the office five days. But bottom line, the employee is in control more than they've ever been in control. And I think that's a good thing. But it's but those employees have to understand this is business. That's right. We have to make a living. So if I'm a supervisor as a leader, what I would suggest folks do is if you've got 15 employees, say, okay, here's the business objectives we have. I'm going to give you all some autonomy to try to come up with how you all can meet your needs by meeting business objective needs. And that goes to Daniel Pink, number one's autonomy. Yeah. Let them, let them have a choice in it. They yeah. own it. And then after three or four weeks or a month, say, okay, how's this working? If it's working well, nice job. If it's not working well, we've got to sit back and we've got to punt. Yeah, and, and you know, the thing that I tell my team members and I tell my clients is, um, you know, set those objectives, set those deadlines, you know, set those goals, and let your people achieve those goals. And I, I, I tell them very simply, there's only two criteria. There's really three. Meet meet the goal and do it legally and ethically. Mm -hmm. That's it. How you get there, I don't care. As long as it's legal and it's ethical. Yep, exactly. And, and if Trust you want to work at three in the morning to get it done, that, that's up to you. Work at three. Exactly. Yeah, work at three. Um, you, you know, I every time I hear you talk about, uh, and I've heard you talk about this before, about the nap. Edison. If you ever go down to the, the Ford Edison Museum in Fort Myers, Florida, 
And you can look in his laboratory where he did a lot of his experiments. He's got a cot in the corner. Took, he took 15-minute naps on a regular basis because, you know, he, he recharged his mind. And he got up and he's like, I want to invent the photograph today or whatever. I, I, nap, I nap every day unless I'm doing a workshop. Yeah. That's an eight-hour workshop, but very often if we take a lunch break, I'll go out and nap for five or so minutes is because the flow state, yesterday, taking a nap, and I want to take about, the ideal nap's about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and even Daniel Pink talks about a nappuccino. So a lot of folks that don't want to take a nap because they say they feel groggy when they wake up, well, he says it takes about seven minutes or so for caffeine to take a place. So, uh, so take a nap. Uh, take a, drink a cup of coffee first, take a nap for about 15 minutes. When you wake up, that coffee's kicking in. Yeah, so you, you don't have that groggy feeling. But yesterday, uh, it's been after the 4th of July. I don't have a lot of travel this week. So I want to take a nap about 2.30 in the afternoon. I started taking a nap. I couldn't go to sleep because I started coming up with ideas. I was working with a client. So what inevitably happens is when I give myself a chance for the stage two flow state, which is the release I typically won't even take the nap because then that's when I turn off and I start coming up with ideas and I have to get up and write that down before I forget it. You know, yeah. you're a musician. How many musicians have you heard said wrote a, wrote their song in the middle of the night? Oh yeah. They woke up and all of a sudden they oh my gosh that's a great lyric. Yep. But if we don't give our employees, and I'm not suggesting our employees, we give them an opportunity to take naps. But will you? There's management and leadership. Will you cool your management jets long enough to lead people? And leading people means you trust them and you give them an opportunity to create a workspace where they create the flow. I work from my home. I've got a beautiful office like you do. Mm -hmm. I don't get in my flow state in the office. I get in the flow state at the kitchen table. And my wife will wonder, Greg, you've got a nice office. Why are you here at the kitchen table? Because I don't get in the flow state in my office. So guess what I'm doing? I'm taking my traditional desk in my office as we speak and my wife is giving me the kitchen table to move in my office, and she's going to buy a new kitchen table. Because that kitchen table, to me, is bigger. It, I can spread all my stuff out. That's mm -hmm. a flow state opportunity. Yeah. And I tell that story is, as leaders in our organizations, A, are you creating a flow state for yourself? Are you also letting your employees? They may want to work in the conference room instead of their traditional office. Yeah. It's just a different, again, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't been for the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it, it changed it changed everything. And, uh, it, you know, so I'm, I'm going to move on here because uh, one of the things I've heard you talk about uh, a time or two is um, the importance of EQ and IQ. Mm. And how do you believe smart people can benefit from seeking help and support in areas such as leadership and management? So elaborate on well, that. Well, great question. I, I work like you do with very, very smart people, and they have IQ. There's no doubt. What about their EQ? And explain what EQ is, because um, not everybody knows that. Emotional intelligence. Yeah, it's you know, not you, the stereo. Exactly. <laughs> You've got IQ. You have EQ, emotional intelligence. And there's a lot of definitions of emotional intelligence. My definition of emotional intelligence is what happens to the oxygen when you walk in the room. Mm -hmm. And we've been around folks, very smart folks, that walk in the room, and they have to be the smartest person in the room. They have low IQ. Now, not most smart people I know have high IQ also. Yeah. But what happens very often is we get in such a management situation, and I talk quite a bit about it's management and leadership, not or. I was hired by a great leader 
in my last corporate job, I was fired by a great manager. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't performance. It was just a personality issue. And I look back every day when you point a finger at somebody else, you got three coming back at you. And and I realize every day I, I, I contributed to what happened. But it was the best thing that ever happened is I, it made me realize it's management and leadership. Mm-hmm. For the most part, we manage things and we lead people. Right. Now, there, is a, there are occasions where we have to manage people, but for the most part, we manage things, we lead people. We have IQ and we have EQ. IQ, you can't do without IQ, obviously, to run an organization. What about the emotional intelligence? What happens to the oxygen when you walk in the room? Are you sensitive? Are you self-aware? Do you realize how your emotions impact other people? If you know you can manage, if you love, you can lead. And a lot of folks I work with, they don't always, they understand it, but they don't realize in business, you have to have that emotional intelligence. Tell the, uh, well, well, first of all, all, the the EQ, um, that's culture too. Culture. That, that that equates to culture. But you've told a story about, I've heard you do this a time or two, where you say, all the A students on this side of the <laughs> do that. I mean. It was you, a true story. And in college, uh, I, I had a class, and the professor was one of the most profound things I ever heard in school, is he, he said, everybody stand up. And we all stood up. He goes, all the A students, get on this side of the room. And of course, that wasn't me. He goes, all the B, C, and below Coker over on this side. <laughs> and I went on the other side. And he looked. He said, A students, look at these guys and gals because one day you're going to work for them. Yeah. What he was basically saying is, you A students, God bless you. You know, you're doing great. Don't lose sight on the emotional intelligence. And and he didn't say EQ because that was a, yeah, a he didn't know what EQ was the thing then. But that's what he was basically saying. But it also made me realize, hey, Greg, you've got this EQ, uh, and I got it from my mom. You know, my mom to this day is dancing down in Franklin, Kentucky, and yeah, as, I saw as, her the other day in the car. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I went to pick her up. <laughs> my she mom laughed. I, I'm like, hey, Coker, is that your daughter with you? There? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she loved it. You made her day, and that's emotional intelligence. Yeah. As you're driving on the road and you give a compliment to my mother, and she's like, "Who is that? I love him." And she knows you because you guys went used to go to the church together. Yeah. But there's IQ and there's EQ, and in, in school, and, I, and I, my second book is Soft Skills Field Manual, and I work with a lot of school systems. There's hard technical skills, which are the most important. We mm-hmm. could not run a business without hard technical skills. You can't lead if you don't manage first. got to manage the business. But in my book, Soft Skills Field Manual, the way I define soft skills are all the dynamics outside the technical aspects of one's job. So you mentioned culture, soft skill. Yeah. Going to a funeral home when a friend of yours grandfather passed away, soft skill, EQ. Yeah. Because as an employee, if if your employee has a relative that passed away or is in the hospital, if you send a thank you note, uh, well not a thank you note for me, but if you send a condolence note or say I'm thinking about you, I care about you, that's the emotional intelligence. You grab people. It's gotta be authentic. Yeah. Which authenticity is a key soft skill. But emotional intelligence, soft skills, actually is a better predictor of life success than IQ. And I did this workshop for a group of high schoolers a couple, six months ago. And I had a young lady walk up to me and she goes, so so you're saying that EQ is a better predictor of life success than my IQ? And I said, exactly. And she goes, thank you for saying that because my parents for so long have pressured me to make the best grades on my ACT and all these testing which is important, 
but they're failing to realize that I need to be involved with sports and music and other things. I said, exactly. Yeah. We all work with people who there's no doubt they are the smartest person in the room, but they don't know how to communicate very well. They're not asking folks how they feel, what they need, and mental health and well-being is such an issue in organizations right now. And if you're not checking on your employees on a weekly basis, and that's what this latest Gallup poll says, is what can managers do to be the best leader they can be? And what they talk about is the most important habit of a great manager is one meaningful conversation per week with each team member. Yeah. If you're not checking in to saying, Jim, how you doing? Hey, how's that grandbaby? Some of that walking around leadership. Walking around leadership. Yeah. You know, because the number one reason for engagement is a personal relationship with one's immediate supervisor. It doesn't mean drinking beer with them. It doesn't mean playing golf with them. It means that if I work for Jim DeCesare and Jim on a Monday morning goes, Coker, how you doing? How's Charlotte? Which is my two-year-old granddaughter. How's Charlotte doing? Jim, man, she's doing good. Hey, you got any pictures of her? Let me show you a couple pictures. I'm going to be more engaged in the business because you took some time to ask me about my granddaughter. Yeah. That's the emotional intelligence. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, you and I recently um, uh, shared a, a, a conversation about the great philosophers. Mm. And, you know, you, you, they got it. I mean, they understood the part about being intelligent, but they were also well-rounded in, in the arts and other things as well. And, you know, they, they talked, they talked about it then we're talking about Socrates and Plato and uh, Aristotle, mm. you know, these guys got it. They yeah. got it. And, and I'm in such a rabbit hole on the, on the philosophers. I didn't have philosophy in college. Uh, and, but I, I took a class, an online class. There's a, there's a university that offers free online courses and I've taken about 15 of them. Uh, every night I'll listen to him, but on Western philosophy, never heard of Western philosophy. The definition of philosophy is the love of wisdom. Yeah. I didn't know that. And then I started studying Socrates. Socrates said, before you teach a child architecture, you should teach her or him the love of a building. Wow. Yeah. So in school, you know, we, we teach algebra and geometry and the sciences, which are all important. And that was Aristotle who basically came up with all that. But we should take that student out to the airport and show them an airplane and take them up and go, now let's go talk physics. Yeah. Or take them to listen to you play music and then say, now let's go talk about arts and sciences of how music touches the soul. Yeah. And and the philosophers, you are dead on. Marcus Aurelius on how we deal with obstacles in life. You know, you obstacles in life are the way. And we, when I got fired from corporate America, it was hard. It was very tough. But the, that obstacle was the way of helping me find my why that Simon Sinek talks about in the, in the TED Talk. Yeah. And uh, it's just good stuff. It's good, it's stuff. good stuff. And the older we get. The more uh, philosophical the we more get. <laughs> well, we're all philo- we're philosophers. Yeah. You know, you and I are philosophers. And, and I'll be 59 in a couple of days. I don't want to get old, but I love growing older. Yeah. Because Maslow talked about in the hierarchy of needs, the mm-hmm. self-actualization. And at 38, there was no way I was going to get to that peak of self-actualization. But I think I'm close to that self-actualization 
at, at, at 59 years old, I want to tell people I love them. I want to care for them. I want to ask about them. And that is a beautiful thing. And I think that's what Socrates and Aristotle and Plato talked about. What is beauty? Yeah. Well, when I see you with your grandson or you and you and Amy holding hands at a ball game, that is beautiful. That's what, not likely to happen, but you know, <laughs> no PDA in this. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I held hands for a couple of weeks ago for the first time in ten years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, we, that's we a beautiful joke, thing. It, when we go in the grocery store on Sundays, I say, "You want to hold hands?" <laughs> we just laugh. You know, it's like a joke to us. <laughs> And Justin's getting a kick out of that too. All right, hey, we, we've kind of talked about the the shift of values within an organization, that, uh, and and that was one of the questions I had. You know, anything you want to talk about, because you know the pandemic has shifted values in the organization. But anything else you want to elaborate on that? Well, here's here's what I'll say: it, this generation that's coming into the workplace are more focused on an organization's values mm-hmm. and their purpose than you and our generation. I mean, when I graduated from school, I just wanted a job. I yeah. mean, I, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I just wanted a paycheck. And, and I wanted I wanted a lot of paychecks. I mean, we were living in a, you know, you had to have the biggest house and try to get a BMW or whatever. I mean, yeah, we, my the kid, yuppies. We, the yuppies, yeah, exactly. And, and your kids, Justin, and, and my kids, they're a lot better at not overspending like our generation did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but values to this generation, they want to know what your values are and they want to know what your why that Simon Sinek talks about. Now, every organization, every organization has values. We all have values. Most organizations have them, but they do not put them on their website. And I'll look at clients of mine before I go work with them. The first thing I'll do is Google their website and look at it. And nine times out of 10, they do not have their values listed. Mm-hmm. They'll have maybe mission and vision. Very often not, though, but they'll rarely ever have values. And if I'm interviewing for a company, I want to know what do you stand for? You know, what do you want to do? And what those are your values. Right. And they also want to know what your why is. And I've talked quite a bit about the Simon Sinek, and that's everyone's homework assignment. If you haven't Googled Simon Sinek, start with why. It's the most, it's the number two most downloadable TED Talk in all of TED Talks. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the golden circle. In the golden circle, there is the what, the how, and the why. Yeah. And the what is, well, what do you do, Greg? Well, I do motivational speaking. I'm, I've written a few books. And, okay, that's not overly exciting. Uh, how do you do it? Well, uh, I've got a book, and I do some speaking. I've got some training workshops. Why do you do it? Well, if one person can leave my workshop and be a better husband, a better wife, a better brother, a better sister, I've done my job. Yeah. And what I find in my workshops, Jim, is if you're doing something at home, you're probably going to do it at work. If I'm a servant leader at work, now maybe I can offer to do the dishes at home. And I wasn't doing the dishes at home. I was complaining about the dishes at home. Right. But guess what? Now that I've been at work trying to be more of a servant leader, I've now started trying to be a servant husband. If I'm good at home, I'm probably going to be good at work. So a lot of my workshops now, it's probably more focused on home life. But guess what? If I'm better at home, I'm going to be a better leader. Yeah. And that is my why. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Didn't say I had a plan. He had a great plan, the what. But people are more motivated by your why than they are 
your what. And that's changed during the pandemic. So organizations, I would challenge organizations to do a couple things. Number one, make sure you have your values listed on your website. Number two, insist that your CEO of your company goes on and articulates what your why is. Interview your CEO. So when she comes on the website saying, hey, first of all, thanks for visiting our website. Let me tell you what our why is. Mm -hmm. What we do is you may be in the road business, and I work quite a bit in the construction industry. Well, guess what? What do you do? Well, we build roads. Well, that's the what. How do you do it? Well, we, we've got roads. We've got bridges. Why do you do it? Why do we do it, Greg, is because you and Jim DeCesare and other people can drive up and down the roads in Kentucky and in Tennessee and all across the United States and do your job. That's economic development. And when you can do that, you can provide for your family. That's the why. Yeah. And that's why these young folks will come work for you instead of your competitors because they're value-focused and they're why-focused. So talking about things organizations should prioritize to foster a thriving and successful environment, values. Mm, definitely. Uh, your why. Mm-hmm. What else? Well, there I mean, are two, you've talked on a lot of them, but, but what are the two big ones? Well, the, well the, I don't know if they're the two big ones. Well, they're two of the big ones. And, and the, the two of the things that I think most organizations uh, would say are the most important are the two things that most organizations suck at, excuse my French, is orientation and performance management. Mm-hmm. Orientation basically goes like this. Hey, Greg, I'm glad you're here. You're going to do great. Hey, I've got to be out of town in a couple hours. Let's get together next week. Uh, And oh, by the way, you've got all this paperwork to fill out. Fill it out. Do the insurance. We'll get together next week. And next week rarely happens. Right. And an employee, based on research, within the first 48 hours has determined whether they're going to stay with your company or not. The first 48 hours. During that onboarding process, if they don't feel like they're part of the team from the get-go. Amen. Amen. And there's a great book called The Power of Moments, Mm -hmm. and it describes what John Deere does the right way because they realize that orientation experience should be a powerful moment. And what this book, Powerful Moment, talks about is most things in life are forgettable, occasionally remarkable. And as a leader of your organization, as a leader in your family, we have to be in the powerful moment business. And orientation is one of those powerful moments that most organizations neglect. The employee comes in on the first day. They don't know where to park. A lot of people in the office don't even know they're starting that day. They don't know who they are. You give them the crappiest computer in the world that the person before that had quit. It was crappy then. You give it to them. They're frustrated. In the first 48 hours, they realize this was the worst decision I've ever made. Yeah. You've got to do, we have got to do a better job of orientation. The second thing that we do is performance management. I call them poop sandwiches because most traditional performance management systems are poop sandwiches. It basically goes like this. Greg, here's what you're doing good, but then I'm going to move to what you're not doing too good on. But I feel bad about mentioning what you're not doing good on, so I'm going to end on, the, I'm end on some good. So you got good, bad, good. That's a poop sandwich. And if you do performance appraisals like that, they're never going to hear the good in the future because they're thinking about the poop's going to follow. They never hear the good you end with because they're thinking about the poop you just talked about. So what I talk about is it should be a conversation. So three magic questions. If Jim DeCesare works for me, Jim, three questions. What's going well? 
Where are you getting stuck? If you've even think you're getting stuck, you may not be getting stuck. And then number three, what do you suggest you need to be doing for the next six months? I shut up and let my employee talk. Yeah. It's his meeting. It's her meeting. But what I find in most performance appraisals is 85% of the talking is done by the supervisor. It should be reversed. Let your employees have a conversation. Talk about going well, getting stuck, do differently. And then when they're through, ask them, would you be open for some feedback? But my, my experience, I'm sure like yours, 99% of the time, they identify where they're getting stuck already. They know where they're getting stuck. Yeah. But let's say if they don't, hey, Jim, I got some feedback for you. Would you be interested? Now, if there's trust between you and the other person, they're going to be interested. If there's not, go back and work on the trust. Because if you don't work on the trust, they're not going to hear it anyway. You might as well not even tell them about it. So you work. I got some feedback for you, some additional feedback. Would you be interested? Sure. So then I give the feedback. So guess what? Then what managers and supervisors tell me is all my time at the end of the year spent on doing performance appraisal uh, feedback and worksheets. Well, guess what? Number one, it should be a conversation. Number two is let them do their worksheet. Say, listen, you take our conversation, Jim. Our HR folks are going to want this form, which they deserve. It's a good form. They need to have that form. Take the form. You fill the form out. It's your form. You own it. And then bring it back to me. If I agree with it, I'm sure it will. If I don't, I'll tell you what we need to add to it, subtract from it. I sign it, you sign it, and guess what? You take it to HR. So now as a leader, I'm not doing your performance appraisals. You're doing your performance appraisals. So two things, number one, orientation, number two, performance management. Those are the two things I think are most, some of the most important things in organizations. It's the two things that most organizations suck at. Yeah. And I've had, I'm working with a, major university in another state on they've totally redone their performance appraisal systems based on three questions. In Pennsylvania, I work with a group, they've changed theirs. Three questions because most performance appraisals end in worse behavior if you'd never had the darn things. So you need to yeah. throw away the darn performance management and have a conversation and move forward with it. Those are two of the ones I would identify. And as a side note, you mentioned John Deere. I believe it's the CEO for every new employee. They open their, their new computer, not a crappy one, a exactly. new one. And yep. there's a, a, a video message from him or an email from him that, you know, welcome to the team, a personal. A personal. And another thing I'll add, and Jim, you've been a big inspiration for me, is um, I am a reader. I am a big reader because there's a book called Atomic Habits. And I love the Atomic Habits, which you've turned me on to, a lot of other books. It says that most folks start with the outcome. I won't lose 10 pounds. That's the outcome. Then there's the process. Well, I need to start drinking more water and back off from the desserts. And then number three is if I do all this, I'll be a healthy person. And what he talks about in, in the Atomic Habits is start with the identity. Tell yourself you are a healthy person. And what I started doing with reading, I used to tell myself I wasn't a big reader. Well, guess what? The brain heard myself. Tell myself. So I started with the outcome in the identity. I am a big reader. So you've helped me big time read more books. But I will say this. If you are a leader, you better be a reader. And if oh, you're absolutely. not reading one book a month, and thanks to you, I probably read three or four books a month now. Leaders are readers, and there's so many great books out there. I've got a list of all my books that I suggest. I know you do. You talk. You I, turn I can't me on read them all. <laughs> I'm trying. Well, you turn me on. I, you, I sent you the list, and you said I would add these to it. Yeah. Well, guess what? I added them. But if someone, if you go to Barnes & Noble, and you see a good book, and you're like, you know, that looks pretty interesting. I might buy that. Well, you maybe probably should buy that. But if someone comes up to you, and says, you need to read this book. This is a good book. 
you don't have a choice. If someone comes up to you and said, if they took that much time out of their work life to say, this is a good book. And my client at the Kentucky Department of Transportation, Denitra, came up to me and said, Greg, have you read this? And I had not read that. It's uh, Culture Shock from Gallup. And that talks about all the new workplace things I've mentioned a couple of statistics from. Well, Denitra walked up to me, and she's a leader, a great leader, and she goes, have you read this? I had not. Well, guess Denitra what? Denitra Henderson, right? She is awesome. <laughs> yeah. And guess what? So she, when she walks up to me, I have no choice. I've got to go buy this book. She's a, one of the the district engineers for she the is. transportation cabinet. She is sharp. Yeah, and she's she, smart. So if someone, and Jim DeSedri, you've you've told me a lot of books to read. Uh, hopefully I've told you some books to read. And and Jim and I, you, I mean, folks out there, we're in a book club together. Yeah. It's the and, most, and we've had Dr. Neil on here. We've talked about the book club before, so it's not a total secret. <laughs> exactly. At first we, but the book club that, that Jim and I put together, it's been probably one of the most profound things I've ever done in business. Because we we read a book a month. That's twelve months in a year. In two years, we've read you know twenty four books plus. Yeah, it's almost three years. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so forty eight, yeah, thirty or so. books. Yeah, so it's pretty good. Hey, this has been fun, real fun. Let's do it again. All right, absolutely. And uh, anything, any final comments you want to add, or you just let's wrap it up. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I appreciate the opportunity. You're you're on the you are the right track. Podcast. Uh, I, I mean, I've got books. I read a lot of books. You read a lot of books. I've written some books. And, I haven't and then, written a book. Well, you, you, everybody's got a book in them. Uh, yeah. The only reason I wrote a book is because I was I was afraid. I've studied motivation all my life. The number one motivator is fear. Sure. And when I got fired from corporate America, I had I realized well, what's next. There's a great book called Halftime by Bob Buford. And he uses the metaphor of a football game. The first half of your life, you get beat up. You try to make money. You do all these things. The second half of the ball game is when the game is won. The second half of life, most folks think the first half is as good as it's going to get in your life. No. no. The game of life is won in the second half. That's right. And that's where we are. And in the second half, folks are more interested in podcasts like you do. They want short, sweet snippets of education, uh, which I'm putting together a video series now on a master class. And because that's what our employee, that's what leaders want. So thank you for doing this. Thanks for your friendship. No, thank you. I appreciate you. My it's pleasure. been a pleasure. My pleasure. Greg Coker, everyone. Wow, that's good stuff. And as you can tell, Greg Coker is passionate about what he does, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Next week on the DeCesare Group podcast, we'll have Dion Houchins, CEO of Houchins Industries. We're going to discuss the impact Houchins Industries has had on the regional economy through job creation, investment, and growth, and I hope you join us. Thanks for listening to the DeCesare Group podcast, and check out and subscribe to our newsletter, Soki Economic Development and Business News, at thedeCesareGroup.com, and like and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's program is produced by the DeCesare Group, a full-service business consulting, development, and public relations firm. The man behind the scenes is our engineer, Sir Napsalot, Justin L. DeCesare, with content contributions by Brooke Mattingly and Amy DeCesare. Download the DeCesare Group podcast on your favorite podcasting platform to hear from industry leaders, business owners, and experts about the latest economic development and business activities in South Central Kentucky. I'm Jim DeCesare, and join us again next time for the DeCesare Group Podcast.